Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Well, today we're continuing our series in His Story, Lessons from the Old Testament, sort of God's uh, experience with the human family, His interactions with the human family. And today we've entitled our message, Back to God. And I want to talk about sort of those times in our lives where we sort of wander or sort of drift away from faith and then moving back to a place of commitment to God. Consider this mission statement of a well-known university. To be plainly instructed and consider well that the main end of your life or the main purpose of your life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ. Sounds like a Bible college, doesn't it? Sounds a lot like where I went to college. This college was founded in 1636. This university employed exclusively Christian professors, so only Christians could teach there. If you weren't a Christian, you could not get on the faculty. It emphasized character formation in its students above everything else and placed a strong emphasis on equipping ministers or pastors to share the good news. So it's basically a clergy training school. Every diploma read, Christo et Ecclesia, around veritas, meaning truth for Christ and the church, and you've probably heard of the school, it is Harvard University. After 80 years, so that was founded in 1636, so most of you weren't here at that time, a couple of you may remember that. After 80 years, I want you to think about this, after 80 years, so in the early 1700s, a group of New England pastors sensed that Harvard had drifted too far. So in the early 1700s, they're saying, we can't trust Harvard anymore. And so they uh, approached a wealthy philanthropist who shared their concerns, and this man's name was Elihu Yale. And they financed, uh, in 1718, a college called Yale University. Yale's motto was not just veritas or truth, like Harvard, but lux et veritas, light and truth. Today I would think we would all agree that would not be the best place to hire your next pastor from. Harvard and Yale's legacy of academic excellence are still intact, but neither school resembles what their founders envisioned. At the 350th University celebration of Harvard, Stephen Muller, former president of Johns Hopkins University, bluntly stated the bad news is the university has become godless. In fact, it's Harvard or Yale, I believe I spoke about this a number of months ago, uh, like their head chaplain is actually an atheist. Larry Summers, the former president of Harvard, confessed things divine or things about God have been central neither to my professional nor to my personal life. Harvard and Yale's founders were unmistakably clear in their goals, academic excellence and Christian formation. Today they do something very different from their founding purpose. And what happened to those two schools is actually got a name. It's called Mission Drift. Mission Drift. Anyone alive in the last couple hundred years, and that would include most of us, anyone alive in the last couple hundred years, that would be all of us, by the way, has witnessed something like this. Movements lose momentum, and they die. 
societies that are mostly Christian become post-Christian. They drift over time. Today, we are all watching sort of Christian North America mid-drift as I speak. And if you're a little older than me, you've seen more of it than I have. Generationally, every generation has seen significant drift in our culture as it relates to morals, values, the the loss of the Judeo-Christian ethic in society, etc. Denominations drift. You've seen it. You've watched it. During our lifetimes, denominations have radically altered their theological perspectives. Seminaries, colleges drift. Places that I would have said or recommended somebody go to school 40 years ago, some of them I cannot. Same with you. People drift as well. And as these drifting movements happen in our lives or in the lives of institutions, Most of the time, especially with institutions, nobody says, we're walking away from God. They don't say that. We're going to disobey God. They don't say that. Rather, they always feel like they're in the light as they do it. God surely didn't speak. This can't really be God's word. The Bible is written by men reflecting their ultra-religious and cultural views, but surely there isn't a God who really gave us this book. And what drives this drift in society and in denominations and Christian groups and people is largely what we would call, from a biblical standpoint, the world. The world. A pastor about 100 years ago said this, it's not the ship in the water, but the water in the ship that sinks it. So it's not the Christian in the world, but the world in the Christian that constitutes the danger. The problem for all of us is all movements, all people begin in the world. And the Bible has a definition for world that might be a little different than ours. When we think of the world, we're thinking the earth. When the Bible talks about the world, it it usually uses this word cosmos. It's where Jesus says, love not the world. He's not talking about the planet. We should love the planet. He's talking about love not the world. That word sort of means the arrangement of things. And what he means by it, it's sort of the philosophical Uh, sort of beliefs in the world system that are against the kingdom of God, against the advancement of God in the world. That's the world. And until God, which he will one day, until God personally rules over the earth in the future, all movements are under constant threat from this living in the world and being influenced by it. And today we find Jacob in sort of a unique situation. He's the new leader of the clan. We're in the book of Genesis. He's the new leader of the clan that's going to become a nation that we know is going to be called Israel. So he inherited the promise to bless the world. A little review back in Genesis chapter 12 through Genesis chapter 18. What you've got is God communicating with Abraham several different times, a couple of key times, and in it we call it the Abrahamic covenant. So God made a special deal with Abraham that he would become a people. So Abraham is going to eventually become a nation. God said, I'm going to put this nation on a piece of land between these three continents, heavily traveled trade routes, a very difficult part of the world to defend, but God would put them on that land and he would bless them and he would defend them if they obeyed him. So there'd be a people, a land, a blessing, and also the Savior would come through this clan. Abraham then passed on those promises, or God passed on those promises from Abraham to his son Isaac and now to Jacob, who now God has renamed Israel. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. 
So Genesis is basically the development. Genesis 12 through 50 is the development of a large clan out of Abraham that at the end of Genesis is kind of a tiny nation, and then Exodus, the next book, opens with a nation of probably two or three million people that are in Egypt in slavery. So back to Jacob. Now he's inherited these promises that he's going to be the progenitor of a nation that will bless the world. But we all know, and from the last couple of weeks we talked about this, Jacob starts out a little rough. His name actually means deceiver, and he has lived up to that name. Because of what his character is, he has broken relationships everywhere he goes, and he struggled to trust God. But now he's beginning to trust God. He's beginning to grow in his faith. He's beginning to grow in his character. He has a family. We really didn't talk much about that other than the first wife or wives that he, he acquired. He's got this family. Those sons become the 12 tribes of Israel eventually. So he's got a whole bunch of sons and daughters. And the names of his sons are things like Simeon, Reuben, Levi. They become the 12 tribes of Israel. That's already happened. Relationships have been mended between him and his brother who hated him, between him and his father-in-law who was ready to come after him as well physically. Relationships have been mended and God has renamed him Israel. Now he's back in the land. He had come down from modern-day Turkey back into Israel. He had went to Turkey to get a wife and to save his life. His brother had wanted to kill him. He's back in the region of Israel, and he's going to become this people that are going to represent God to the world. But what if they drift? I mean, this is just a small clan. It's not even Israel yet. What if they drift away from God's intended purpose. Right now they're just a nomadic clan among a group of pagan cities and small nations and they're at incredible risk of sort of drifting away from God's intention. And if they do, there will be no Israel, there'll be no light to the world in the Old Testament. I'm going to read the aftermath of what I'm going to call sort of a close call with drifting and losing their identity. This is the aftermath and then I'm going to tell you the story about what happened. So I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 35. Genesis chapter 35 is on page 27. Page 27 in the Bible near you. And I want you to kind of keep that open even after I read this because we're going to visit the story in chapter 34. So chapter 35 is sort of a recommitment to God, but the drifting issue is in the prior chapter, and that's the story I'm going to tell. So Genesis 35, on page 27, beginning in verse 1. Then God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, which means house of God. He named it house of God, and live there. And make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods which are among you. This is key. Put away the foreign gods which are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments and let us arise and go up to Bethel or the house of God and I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I've gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods which they had and the rings which were in their ears and Jacob hid them under the oak which was near Shechem. By the way, this does not mean we can't have jewelry. These were clearly pagan symbols. He built an altar there and called the place El Bethel because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother earlier. Now Deborah, uh, 
Rebekah's nurse died, and she was buried below Bethel under the oak, and it was named Alan Bakuth. Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Panoram, and he blessed him. God said to him, your name is Jacob. You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. And thus he called him Israel. God also said to him, and this is a reiteration of these promises to his grandpa and his dad, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. All kings shall come forth from you. The land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I'll give it to you, and I'll give you the land, give the land to your descendants after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken to him. Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it. He also poured oil on it. Jacob named the place where God had spoken to him Bethel. It's the second time he's been there named it that again. Three points from this story that's going to come in the prior chapter, or two from there and one from this chapter. First, Israel made an alliance with the outside world that simply cannot be made. Now what I mean by Israel is that you could say that's Jacob, you could also say it's this fledgling nation, either one. That word now is going to mean both. It's going to be the person Jacob renamed Israel, but it also is sort of the beginnings of this nation. So chapter 35, which we just read, is kind of a back-to-God moment. It involves, as we read, a purging of idols that people had accumulated. We'll talk about that in a moment. It involves a return to Bethel, the most meaningful physical place in Jacob's history. Bethel is where he saw that stairway to heaven, if you recall that. Not the Led Zeppelin one, but the one that Jacob talks about. He saw a stairway to heaven vision. And Bethel is what he named that place. It used to be called Luz. It involves a reiteration of God's promises, which we just read. So this all happens in chapter 35. But it's the result of a very dangerous situation in Jacob and the nation's life, this clan's life, in chapter 34. And here is that story. Jacob has a large family at this time. His son's are going to become the 12 tribes. So he's got at least a dozen sons. He's got multiple daughters. There's a clan. And he's wealthy, so he's got all kinds of people who travel with him and are part of his clan. And as they all journeyed back into Israel from Haran, remember Jacob had gone to Haran or Padam Aram, which this verse talks about. They're the same thing. They're a place in Turkey up by the Euphrates River. It's where Jacob had gone back to get a wife. And he had done it to flee from his brother. Now he's come down back into Israel. When they came back, they settled in a place called Shechem in Canaan. Shechem is a city. Shechem is also a person. The person Shechem is a prince. So we assume the city Shechem is named after the prince of Shechem. Jacob has a daughter. This is a tough story you're going to hear. Jacob has a daughter named Dinah. And the scriptures say, Dinah, and this is a quote, went out to visit the daughters of the land. Now that's all it says about her travels away from her tribe. She went out to visit the daughters of the land. Now this was not, according to some scholars, simply a walk to the mall. Some suggest she went to a pagan feast or a pagan festival, a major event. Because either way, at whatever she was doing, it landed her in the proximity of Shechem, who is the prince of Shechem. He was completely smitten with her. She was a beautiful girl. And we assume 
based on how this plays out, she was probably smitten with him as well. But his culture, unlike hers, had no sexual boundaries. And he was the prince. So he had sex with Dinah, chapter 34, verse 2, by force. Now, scholars estimate her at about 15 years of age. This is a pretty complex situation, and I'm going to be in trouble no matter what I say here, because I'm a guy, and I know that. So no letters, please. This sounds like date rape by any standard in our culture, but the Bible also says, along with this, he loved the girl, he spoke tenderly to her, and he said to his father, get me this young girl for a wife. So at a minimum, and this is messy to describe, things went too far. It was his fault completely. It was wrong. He broke every law in the Western world, he would say. But there also seems to be some relationship between these two, where it's not like she hates him. She was open to being with him, and things went too far. That's what it looks like. So this set many things in motion. Number one, Dinah's brothers when she goes home, are furious. And there's a lot of brothers. And they're kind of violent, which we'll get into in a moment. Second, this opened a door for Shechem's father. So he goes back to his father, and he talks to his father about this woman that he wants to marry. And then his father comes to the brothers, and probably Joseph, but jo or Jacob. But Jacob isn't really mentioned in this chapter much, which is really interesting. Shechem's father appeals for a broad intermarriage arrangement. We want Dinah for Shechem. In fact, we want to intermarry with all of you Israelites or whatever you're going to be called. We want to intermarry with all of you. Why don't our daughters become your wives and your daughters become our wives? And he says basically to the little clan, Let's take the long look here. You're settling here. We can all prosper. Let's just intermarry, and we'll basically be one people, these two clans. That was another thing that happened. Third thing that happened is the sons of Jacob were not over Dinah in that situation, and they devised a plan that even out Jacobed Jacob. Now, remember, Jacob's name basically means stinker. If we were naming him today, we'd say, that dude is a stinker. He is a deceptive, lying, fill-in-the-blank kind of guy. And his sons learned a few things from daddy. Jacob's changing, but I got to tell you, he passed on some of that. So here's what they did. Circumcision was the symbol of Jewishness. It's part of the Abrahamic covenant. If you're going to be Jewish and you're male, you get circumcised when you're eight days old. I mean, there's no ifs, ands, and buts about it. It's, it's the symbol of Jewishness. It was sort of the human side of the covenant, along with faith in God and obedience to God. It's how Israel showed in their flesh that they were cut off from the world, separate from the world. So it's the human side of the covenant. So here's what Dinah's brothers did. They went to the people of Shechem, basically the dudes. They went there at the edge of the city where the people would sort of make all their judgments. The men would sit at the city gate. And they asked the Shechemites to be circumcised as a whole clan. Said, this is what it means to be Jewish, and if we're going to be intermarrying with you, we want all of you to be circumcised. Believe it or not, the whole town consented. Except one sober guy who thought it through. And said, you want me to do what? What? 
That's actually not in the text at all. That was for comic relief. Serious subject. And four of you laughed. Thank you. So the whole town was circumcised. All of the males are recovering on day three from this operation that is a lot less simple in your adult life than when you're eight days old and don't remember it. They're probably drinking in order to dull the pain. And three days into this, two of Dinah's brothers come into the town and they kill every male in the town. Every male of age. Slowly, house to house, knives and swords, bedroom to bedroom, they murdered every man in Shechem. Now, one of the reasons I believe things maybe weren't the way they look exactly with Dinah is Dinah was now married to Shechem. There was a relationship there, even though things had gone too far. She's with him. They take her back out of that home. The rest of the brothers came afterwards. They took the livestock, they took the women and children, they took all their possessions, and all of that was now a part of Jacob's clan, Jacob's movement, Jacob's possessions. They eliminated the town of Shechem. They killed all the men and they took everything. All right, that's the chapter we didn't read. I could have read that one instead. The violence and its potential then motivated Jacob's perspective in chapter 35. That's what Jacob is responding to, what had just happened. Where to go live, where to go, how to live. But here's the point I want to make. This should have never had a chance of happening. None of this should have happened. And I'm not sure if Jacob really gets it here, but Moses is the one who wrote this chapter. Moses includes it, and he gets it. If Israel intermarries with this clan, there is no people of God, there is no future Savior, and Israel as a nation, as a hope for the world, dies before she's ever a nation. Remember the problem with Esau? What was mom and dad's concern about Esau? He kept marrying Canaanite women. And it wasn't that they were racist. The issue is if you marry Canaanite women who have not left their pagan practices, you're going to be pulled right into it. Because intermarriage was common at times in ancient Israel, but those people were converting to Judaism. Intermarriage was deadly to faith. When people were pagans, Israel would have drifted. She would have never followed the true God. And I believe that's the issue here. This verse, this chapter is not in here because of Dinah. As tragic as that was, Dinah was not the issue. The potential for Israel to be quietly destroyed is the issue. And just after this, Jacob, kind of realizing the nation was at risk, makes every one of them get rid of every semblance of false religion. This was the ultimate threat to drift from God's purpose as a people. Now, because of the deceit of Dinah's brothers, they told the Shechemites, if you get circumcised, we'll all become sort of one tribe. It doesn't really seem like it was ever a legitimate offer, does it? It's kind of like they're just tricking them into sort of having a wound that they're going to be nursing for a few days, and they'll go in and kill them all. I'm not sure if they had that in mind from the start or not. But the Shechemites actually did follow through with the circumcision. Shockingly, I read this story and thinking, what are you guys thinking? 
And Jacob, the leader of the clan, is actually furious that the Shechemites are harmed. Which means to me that Jacob actually was probably okay with the whole thing in the first place. Which is a problem. Jacob's not a very wise leader at this point. Point number two, which we see in that text, and I'll read it for you. The Shechemites were never intending on following Jacob's God. The world only accepts us on its terms. Now, this is the historical truth. The Shechemites were never intending on following Jacob's God. And there's the lesson here. The world accepts us on its terms. You you can't get the world to conform to what you believe. It doesn't typically work that way. Unless a society ends up with a, a massive population of Christians, rarely does the world come towards the church or towards the kingdom of heaven. It's unusual in human history. There's a fascinating discussion that is recorded by Moses, and I'm assuming we have these records because of some of the wives and children who survived that slaughter. Chapter 34, verse 20. This is what the Shechemites were really saying when they agreed to be circumcised. So Hamor, Hamor's the king, and his son Shechem, the prince, came to the gate of their city, verse 20, and spoke to the men of their city, saying, so at the city gates, these decisions would be made. So it's sort of the council. These men are friendly with us. Therefore, let them live in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters in marriage and give our daughters to them. Only on this condition will the men consent to us to live with us, to become one people, that every male among us be circumcised as they are circumcised. And here's their motive. Will not their livestock and their property and all their animals be ours? Only let us consent to them, and they will live with us. And all who went out of the gate of the city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised. You know what you don't hear there? They seem to be following the true God. Not one mention of God. The Shechemites are making a business deal. They have little to lose. They don't know God. They embrace circumcision as a deal to get ahead, and God had been blessing Jacob in incredible ways. They're seeing that. They just sort of want to get on that train. They accepted sort of the shell of Israel's religion, but never its substance, never its God. They had no interest in that. They accepted circumcision, not the God of the Bible. This wasn't Jewish evangelism. It was a massive risk that Jacob and his clan put Israel through. The world rarely moves towards God. And God's plan was at risk in this whole scheme. There's a risk here of not having a nation of Israel. The religions of Cana would have won the day. I mean, how can a God who seems to interact with a patriarch once every few years compete with a fertility cult combining sex and religion? on a regular basis. A Hebrew nation stood little chance of surviving this deal. And then the third point, and what we read, Jacob's close call with tragedy inspired a spiritual purge, a return to Bethel, the house of God, which he had named earlier, and God's blessing. Now, nobody's in the mind of Jacob here. And I can't tell you for sure everything that motivated Jacob. We do have some clues in the text. He may have recognized the spiritual danger that they were in as a clan. Hence, he said that they needed to get rid of all of their idols. Now, what's interesting about that is we know one of Jacob's wives, um, Rachel, 
uh, was not necessarily a very godly woman. She like had pagan idols she had stolen from her father and so on. She was not devout like Leah, who was actually the better choice in that situation, was. So there's some issue there with paganism even in his own family. He's also just conquered the city of Shechem and all of these people are pagans and they're bringing all their gods with them. So there's this big purge. But it also might be that he recognizes we can't be next to these people in their religions and we need to purge ourselves of that. He's also concerned about the physical danger, and this gets expressed at the end of the last chapter. He basically says to his sons, you guys just slaughtered a city full of people, the men, and all the people around here are going to form an alliance and basically wipe us out. Thank you very much. He's pretty upset with his sons. He does mention that. It's probably a combination of the two, but either way, that close call with seeking to be a nation inspired change. God told him, go to Bethel where I met you before, and live there. Jacob got up in front of the clan, and he took a stand, and he said, put away our foreign gods. And he had that problem in his own family, as I said, and there was certainly that issue with the Shechemites, and they buried all of this stuff under an oak tree in Israel. And they traveled to Bethel, where God had first spoken to Jacob. And there God reiterated the blessing that Abraham had first heard. And then Isaac and now Jacob. And he said, a nation and a company of nations will come from you, kings will come from you. The land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I'm giving it to you and to your descendants after you. And he promised Jacob that he would fulfill that covenant. Close calls in our lives with the world around us cause us to reevaluate. They cause us to reorient our lives and priorities. Close calls with drifting away from God, drive us to God. They're eye-opening. They're motivating. I want to close with just a couple of apps. Do I have a wise perspective about my relationship with the world? Do I have a wise perspective about my relationship with the world? I defined the world a little bit earlier, but I, I love what David Wells says here. He says, what is worldliness? It is that system of values in any given age which has as its center our fallen human perspective, which displaces God and his truth from the world, and which makes sin look normal and righteousness seem strange. It gives great plausibility to what is morally wrong, and for that reason makes what is wrong seem normal. That's the world. Boy, do we live that one out today. Everything that we know from the Bible is wrong has been normalized in the world around us. We do not fit in this world. Our values do not fit in this world at all. That's the world. And it's powerful. It's powerful. In 2020, a couple years ago, an English tourist attraction had to scramble after one of their exhibits was temporarily less than family-friendly. Officials at the Lincolnshire Wildlife Park were forced to remove five newly adopted parrots after the birds were discovered swearing at park guests. They were unsure how it happened exactly, but after the five parrots had been quarantined together, they came out with quite the blue vocabulary. Apparently, the park staff found it amusing at first, but that only encouraged the parents to say more obscenities. Here's how the CEO of the park explains the dynamic. For the last 25 years, we've always taken in parrots that have sometimes had a bit of blue language, and we've really gotten used to that. But just by coincidence, we took in five in the same week, and because they were all quarantined together, it meant that one room was just full of swearing birds. And the more they swear, the more you usually laugh, which with them triggers them to swear some more. 
But when you get four or five together that have learned the swearing and the laughing, so when one swears, one laughs, before you know it, it's like an old working men's club scenario where they're all just swearing and laughing. The world is kind of like that, and it wants to make us like itself. Now, Christians struggle with how to relate to the world, and they struggle philosophically with it. In other words, they don't know what to do. And there's various movements that are based on this. And there's three basic ways that Christians and the church historically have done this. One of them is called separatism. Separatism was kind of what the Pharisees were. They were separatists. And that doesn't mean they were all wrong. Their motivations actually originally were incredibly good. If you read the, you know, what the Pharisees were trying to accomplish, it's very noble. Uh, but by the time Jesus arrives on the scene, they seem to have some issues. But we've all participated, I have participated in separatism to some degree. I went to a Christian school starting in about grade seven, I believe. And so after that, I've only been in Christian institutions, Christian junior high, high school, although my kids would say I was basically homeschooled in a church basement. I called it a Christian school. So Christian school is a part of separatism. Homeschooling is a part of separatism. And in my mind, those things are wise in the world we live in today, but they are separatist. So we all kind of participate at times in some of these environments that we would call separatism. There, the problem is with separatism that there are times where the church has decided we're not just gonna do this for a few years with our kids, we're gonna kind of be a movement apart from the world, and that's where you have basically you know, communes, if you will, where we're not in the world. That's when separatism becomes a problem. So separatism is one way that we handle it, and again, there are times where that might make sense. The other response from a lot of the church community in the last couple hundred years has been capitulation. And that's exactly what's going on around us in the world today, where churches are just deciding, you know, we're just gonna kinda go along with what the world says and it's gonna help us. Now, I have a pastor friend who retired, his name is John Steer. He's got a British accent, so I give him credit. He'd probably get an extra 15 IQ points for a British accent. So anyway, he sounds smarter than he is, my point. And when he retired from churches in, the church in Rochester, he and I pastored a couple of the larger churches there, so we tried to maintain a good friendship. And he decided with his wife they're going to visit about 80 churches. Rochester has about 100,000 people or so. There are about 80 churches. He said, we're going to visit all these churches. And he went to one church that had just made the vote where they were going to, I believe, have gay clergy or something like that. So it was part of the whole LG, uh, you know, LGBTQ issue in the church, not about congregants but about clergy. And the church had just done this, and he went up to the minister. He said, so do you really believe this is going to help you? And the minister said, oh yeah, we believe it. it's going to help us grow and people are going to come to church and it's going to really be transformational for our church. He said, you know, if that happens, you will be the only church in the world that has benefited from moving away from a traditional view of this. Because churches don't go from it. They don't grow from it. They are accommodating the views of the world on human sexuality, and I totally understand why they do it, because I want everyone to like me too. I would love to get up here and say things that everyone can agree with, and well, that would be impossible anyway, but nonetheless, don't we all want to fit in with the world? We all do. Oh, wouldn't that be nice? 
if we could be popular with every viewpoint, but we can't. We live in a world of absolutes that come from the scriptures. We need to love everybody absolutely, but we cannot agree with everybody absolutely. And one thing the church has decided to do, and usually starts out little bits and pieces, is simply to capitulate to the world. Separatism, capitulation, and then the third I'm just gonna call wise navigation. And that's what Jesus said. You need to be in the world, but not of the world. You're gonna live in the world, but you cannot become what the world is. And that's hard. That's the place of tension for all of us. Do I have a wise perspective about my relationship with the world? Second, what close calls have inspired me to navigate away from drifting? What treaty have you made with the world around you? What are you accommodating? What's sort of your treaty with the Shechemites that really would risk your faith? We can't compromise. And third, like Jacob, what places and habits will drift-proof my life or your life? There are a lot of people in the world today that have decided they're going to follow God, but they're not going to be part of the church anymore. And that is a massive movement in North America, by the way. Uh, there's a movement towards nuns, no religion. There's also a movement towards what I would call the de-churched. Not unchurched, they're de-churched. They would say that they have a vibrant relationship with Jesus, they love God, they never want to be in a church. And I understand that because church pain is usually a part of everyone's history at some level, and if people can't get over it, they just decide, I'm just going to follow Jesus, but I want nothing to do with the church. Well, I hate to tell you this, but there's nothing Christian about that. It's like not Christianity, because there's no such thing as a Christian on an island in the New Testament. Christians are part of the church we need the places and habits that drift-proof our lives. We need the church in our lives. We need God's word in our lives. We need the community of other people who are, who are following God. We need to do what Jacob said to his clan, is we need to purge the things out of our lives that need to go. What places and habits will drift-proof my life? God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for this story in Jacob's life, and it's an unusual story, and you put these stories in here for a reason. You could have just gone from chapter 33 to chapter 35 and had Jacob moved to Bethel. I think there's a reason you want us to see this, and I believe it's because Israel was at risk, at risk of just becoming a part of the world around them, and instead, you sovereignly protected them, and some decisions were made to make sure that they didn't drift. And you held Jacob fast, and he turned towards you, and you blessed him. And he became the nation that blessed the world. God, help us in our lives to see the world around us objectively, to recognize its threat, to not love the world, but to live in the world, to love the people of the world, but to recognize that we are always going to be strangers and pilgrims, as one of the apostles wrote. Strangers and pilgrims in a world that doesn't agree with our values, and that's okay. But we're meant to be there as salt and light. Help us to be that, in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect 
or go online to bethanychapel.com and click come. Thanks again, and God bless you.